Hey, it's McKay. Have you ever noticed that for whatever reasons, things just get stuck? Nothing seems to work anymore and your healing journey grinds to a halt. That's why I put together a brand new program to help you get back on the healing path. It's called the three-day Lyme Reboot. Head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com forward slash reboot to see if it's a good fit for you. Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Healing from Lyme disease isn't about doing a million different things. It's about finding the few things that work and then sticking with it. Since 2015, McKay Rippey has been encouraging folks to never give up. Lyme disease causes all kinds of problems and focusing only on killing bugs leads to diminishing returns. That's why generic cookie cutter treatments don't work. You need to fight Lyme like a ninja. If that sounds like a plan, keep listening. And if you want to know more, visit us at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Here's your host, McKay Rippey. Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Healing from Lyme disease isn't about doing a million different things. It's about finding the few things that work and then sticking with it. Since 2015, McKay Rippey has been encouraging folks to never give up. Lyme disease causes all kinds of problems, and focusing only on killing bugs leads to diminishing returns. That's why generic cookie-cutter treatments don't work. You need to fight Lyme like a ninja. If that sounds like a plan, keep listening. And if you want to know more, visit us at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Here's your host, McKay Rippey. Hello, hello, hello. It's Tuesday evening, and it must be time for the Lime Ninja Radio Show. Woohoo! Woohoo! Let's just take a moment of commiseration for upstate New York because it is snowing. On May 12th. I just looked out the window. It's still (laughs) actually snowing. It's no joke. Yes. It's accumulating a little bit. So So a moment of silence for upstate New York (laughs) and our spring, quote unquote. (laughs) April is the cruelest month, said the poet, but apparently May is also. Anyway, we're happy you're here. It makes our snowy May 12th so much better to spend some time with you. We, our guest today is Summer Del Signore. She works with Dr. Bach downstate, kind of like to the east and then down south. And uh, we were going to have a discussion about co-infections and pediatric Lyme. However, she has not logged on yet, and we're not exactly sure what's going on. She is actually practicing medicine, telemedicine, so she could be hung up or late with the patients. We'll do our best. We'll just hang out here for a while to see if she comes. If not, it's just you and us, which isn't such a bad thing. So let us know where you're from. We'd love to hear. Say hello to you. Christine, always good to see you. We're so happy you're here. Oh, you have snow too. (laughs) Excellent. 
Misery loves company, as they say. Oh, yes. So go ahead and let us know where you're from so we can say hi. And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem as well as a national problem. It's not just stuck in the Northeast here. It's all over the U.S., maybe a little bit less in the middle of the desert somewhere, but they have other fun tick-borne diseases there. So let us know where you're from. And in the meantime, Aurora, why don't you give us the top 10 cities for the past week? Okay. Drum roll, please. Starting Ooh. in at number 10. There you go. Is Selena, Oklahoma. Number nine is Charlottesville, Virginia. Number eight, Oak Park, Illinois. Number seven, Hopkins, Minnesota. Number six, Steinbach, Canada. Number five, Two Harbors, Minnesota. Number four, Buin, Chile. Number three, Ashburn, Virginia. Number two, Paris, France. And number one, Santiago, Chile. Hey, that's awesome. I'm very excited that this this week we have two cities from Chile. We're spreading in that country, apparently. We're contagious. Yes. <laughs> We're, Santiago was apparently the vector there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We're, we're, all, we're all experts in public medicine. Ah, and Summer has just joined us. So, Summer, we're going to bring you on screen in just a moment. So, hang on. Excellent. Aurora, perfect timing, actually. So, why don't you give us a little bit more infra information about Summer? Sure. So, Summer is a veteran board-certified pediatric nurse practitioner and a member of ILADS. Summer trained in some of the top pediatric hospitals in the country, including the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the Children's of Dallas, Texas, Penn State Children's in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and most recently, Levine Children's Hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina. She completed a Lyme disease internship with Richard Horowitz. She currently wor works with Ken Bach, an expert in autism and PANS pandas, and Summer specializes in the treatment of autoimmune neuroinflammatory conditions, Lyme, and other tick-borne illnesses, and mycotoxicosis or mold exposures. She works with Dr. Bach as a pediatric Lyme specialist, medical writer-slash-blogger, and a consultant to other healthcare providers. That was excellently read. Thanks, Aurora. We'll bring you back up in a little bit. In the meantime, say goodbye. And Summer, say hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited you're here. You really have no idea how excited I am that you're here. Oh, oh me too. I'm, I'm excited that I could log on. You know, yes, exactly. Technical. <laughs> when, whenever, whenever we cut things this close, it's always uh, a bit of a hold the breath and hope things go. Let's oh, just absolutely. say hello to Kathy here. Hello, Kathy. Well, Aurora okay. gave us your background, kind of, you know, the back of the book. When you write your book, that'll be on the back of your book. <laughs> Eventually, but, right. Yes. But, but what I, but what I want to know is why, why pediatrics? Interesting. It's always been pediatrics yeah. for me. Uh, it has been. Um, and, and I blame it on um, a rather aggressive instructor way back in the day. Um, who uh, on, on the adult, uh, uh, one of the adult units, we were, um, uh, you know, going through our clinical rounds and um, 
she kind of made me do something I didn't want to and, and didn't prepare me for it. So I said, nope, that's it. Pediatrics it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it was more of a defiant move at that moment. And then moving on when I did actually train in pediatrics, I thought this is for me. Yeah. So, um, it's, yeah. It's just as important to know good. what you don't want to do. As oh, absolutely. As, right. Yeah. Right. And then right. how, and then the segue to Dr. Bach at Lyme disease. Um, that was an interesting uh, path. Um, and the, the intro, you know, with the bio always sounds a little pompous when I hear it and I cringe, but there's a reason just to say, you know, I, I started off in a very non-integrative, um, non-primary world. It was always very um, mainstream, follow protocols, pediatric ICU, sick of the sickest. And for a while there, I didn't know what a healthy child was supposed to look like and act like. Um, and just kind of um, as as I evolved, as we all do, um, you know, you, you start to question what you're doing, why you're doing it. Um, and, you know, as I sort of researched, um, you know, some of the ongoing issues that we saw in the ICU, I would kind of throw things out there to say, hey, why don't we try this? And it may have been something integrative, like, let's give them a probiotic. And I get the stairs like I had three heads, you know, oh my gosh, no. And I'm thinking, but why? <laughs> why not? So, um, you know, that just kind of led me down that pathway, just asking those why questions. Um, and um, eventually I transitioned from those um, hardcore ICUs, you know, adrenaline driven kind of places to more of that um, primary care. Let me see what a healthy child looks like. I may want to have them one day, you know, it'd be good to know. And, um, and that just continued that path. So it's kind of funny where I started off um, and where I've ended up never thinking that I would be more you know, out in the, the primary world and um, certainly not in integrative care whatsoever. Um, but it was, you know, seeing, um, you know, just, I guess, just having an open mind and saying there has to be a better way. Um, and those were the questions I asked myself constantly. And um, primary care led to an integrative practice, which then led to um, joining up with Dr. Bach about four years ago. Um, and it was just that ever evolving in the primary practice, we started to see a large percentage of kids with Lyme at the time. And again, I didn't really know. I would just kind of follow protocols to say, well, let me treat the way you're supposed to, right? Based on CDC, just like any pretty fairly novice provider would do. Um, and then I would kind of see the sort of sequela to that and these sort of side effects that were sort of lasting and, and they weren't necessarily severe. Mm -hmm. It's almost like that kind of frog in the warm water and you heat it up and you just, so it, it wasn't that evident at the time. Um, but then I would start making other connections and seeing sort of this chronic, um, these chronic illnesses with these kids, just, you know, more behavioral related and more just more infections would, would occur after the Lyme. I'm like, wow, they've had a really big uptick and I can't explain it. Um, and then that led me to more of integrative medicine to say, all right, let's look at this differently because antibiotics aren't going to do it um, alone. You know, so I want to make that clear. Yes, we do use them. But 
Um, but then, you know, those, you know, further investigating led me to integrative med and then specializing in what I do now with children. Um, and it was um, interesting when I um, eventually um, uh, connected with Dr. Horowitz, one of the first things he said to me, he's like, you know, you really need to come and train with me because you are essentially one of the only pediatric Lyme, you know, providers in this area. You've got to do this. And the gravity of that, you know, um, so so that was sort of my calling at that moment, you know, and it has been ever since. So, yeah, yeah. We're, my we're, journey's not over. We'll see what happens next. Well, but. it never is. So, <laughs> so funny story is when I started my acupuncture training a uh, hundred years ago, we st- did classes not by when you graduated, but when you started studying. And their specific reason for doing that was you're just starting now and you will never stop. So don't, mm-hmm. you know, you basically we're going to graduate you so you don't go out there and hurt anybody. Right. And so you better figure out the rest as you go along. And so mm-hmm. and anybody worth their salt is still learning. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's sad when you see a, a physician burn out where they just can no longer take in new information. They're just holding on with their fingernails for dear life. Right. And, you know, some of them take a six months off or a year off. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a brutal world out there. So right. uh, we're, we're happy. Right. We are happy to have you. There is, and I, I always blank on her name, up in Albany area. Who's the other uh, Lyme pediatric physician? Mm. Okay, I'll get her oh, your name because you guys, you guys, you guys at least should know each other because the, right. the uh, there, there um, are you guys are rarer than hen's teeth. <laughs> really, it's hard enough to, to find for that one. <laughs> yeah, really, it's hard enough to find an LLMD, but a pediatric LLMD right, right. Is, is, right. is really is really tough. And cool. so let's I. I do want to ask you first, before we get into the pediatric side of things, about Mm co-infections. And I realize they can vary even from season to season, but definitely regionally. What are you seeing? And you're down, you're downstate compared to me. I know you call it upstate from New York City, but for me, you're downstate. Right, right. You're you're in the Hudson Valley, about halfway up in between New York City and Albany. So what what do you see down there in terms of co-infections? Um, in addition to Lyme, I see a great deal of Bartonella um, and probably closely followed uh, with Babesia. So if I were to put them in order, Lyme, Bartonella, Babesia, and then Rickettsia. So, but huge uh, cases of uh, Bartonella, primarily clinical um, in nature. Um, and and what happens is, um, you know, you start to treat it uh it's such a slow growing small bug. It's hard to capture, but you see the striae, you see the neurological changes and the nightmares and the neuropathy that can't be explained. And, you know, they come to practitioners like you or they go see their chiropractors and they're cutting out dairy and gluten and they're, you know, seeing every rheumatologist under the sun, you know, and pain. Yeah. So, you know, so we, um, so, so I see a great deal of that. And then I find that after we start treating, um, you know, and kind of temper the, the load a bit and, and kind of help the immune system see what it needs to see, that titer will pop up much later after, even after the patient starts to feel better. Um, and so it's, it's a great, there's a hand. No, I got one. Hello. Um, 
that's my youngest. Uh, but um, that's Noah. Hi, Noah. That's my nine-year-old. Yes, he keeps me on my toes. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, um, it, it takes a great deal of effort to convince the patients to say, "Just trust me. This yeah. is here. I promise." So, yeah. And then, how long do you find it takes for the? Like you said, for the for the test to show positive, do you, do you and do you keep on testing just to kind of prove your point, or do you just you know if they say trust me, right. is that enough, and we're just going to treat it and see the clinical improvements? Depends on the person. Um, so routinely, um, I will test about every six weeks. So I try to, wow. to, to take the patients through initially. Um, I like to take the patients through a treatment cycle, knowing most critters. About 30 days or so, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for proliferation. Um, and and many times even treating every six weeks, I'm not necessarily going to train change the treatment at the moment, but I'm just seeing what shifts I'm what, what shifts occur. Um, and when I test, it's never it's never a myopic approach. It is Lyme and all co-infections, because there's sort of the shape-shift way of these little bugs and and you know, the immune system. I joke around with a lot of patients and say, you know, not to offend you, but it's like a dude. It's, it's, you know, not really great at multitasking <laughs> and it can only focus on maybe one or two things at a time. If we get a handle on that, you may see other things kind of bubble up that have always been there. Um, so not to offend, you know, we, we women think we can multitask and we really can't, but we still haven't figured that out yet. Um, but that's, uh, that's another yeah. conversation for another, another conversation. <laughs> yes. So, so but, to, to, inter to totally interrupt you here. So when my, my female patients come in at a certain age and uh -huh. things begin to change again, I, I, at some point, usually uh -huh. uh, after they've kind of gotten over the shock, I say, and now you know what your husband goes through. Because right. estrogen, estrogen is like the super mental drug, and you oh, guys absolutely. can like remember everything, and think of a million things at a time, right. and and we are, and, and, and I'm just one thing at a time in front of me. And don't just don't talk to me while I'm looking at something else because <laughs> it's in one ear and out the other. So right. uh, I'm not offended. We're talking about biological reality here, and oh, absolutely, just the way just it is. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no, it's all good. We have to make light of it. This is some serious stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. My wife did that. To, actually, she did it today. I was watching a YouTube video. I got uh -huh. sucked in. And she says, I'm making turkey soup for you. You come here, and I want you to look at the turkey soup. So, you know, this is your turkey soup. And I'm saying, okay, I got it. And I'm trying not to be offended or offended when she was doing that. Uh, right. But but if she hadn't done yeah. that, I probably would, you know, it's like, where's that turkey soup that you, you told me right. about? Right. I even remember it. Anyway, we were talking about co-infections and particularly Bartonella. Right. And I, th so my youngest daughter, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure has Bartonella and has had oh. some bizarre things throughout her life just kind of show mm -hmm. up. And she does have the, you know, this, the stretch marks, right. Mm -hmm. For a young woman is like, you know, you know, especially when she started showing up and she was all of what, you know, 17, 18. It's like, what are you doing with stretch marks? Right. Like, you're a little young for that. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of before I knew a whole lot about Barnella. But one of mm -hmm. the strangest things she had happen was she had, and this is four years ago, kind of this undiagnosed, undefined meningitis uh, episode that lasted. She had right. basically two 
two or three ER events over a week's time. And the mm-hmm. last one, we kind of brought her back home and she was at home when it happened. And it was, it was one of the worst nights of my life. I mean, she yeah. was just absolutely uh, in incredible amounts of pain. Uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the ER doctor at least he started out thinking, well, it's probably just a migraine, but you know, the, the, uh, did this tap and it came back a little, he said, I don't know what this is. There's something right. abnormal here, you know, so I'm just going to give it some undefined meningitis diagnosis. And, you know, he, mm-hmm. he was very sympathetic, but didn't have a lot, a lot to give us at that That's point. So, you know, so it's crazy. So her, her symptoms was, uh, were acute headaches, right. And mm-hmm. just, you know, th- and, and to see somebody in that much pain, you know, they, they basically lose their mind as well. Uh, right. But it, but it's it's funny how these diseases affect children differently, right? right. And so, mm-hmm. and you began to mention the psychiatric side of things. And so, what mm-hmm. what do you see? What are some of the signs that a child is has an infection like this? And I'll even I'm even going to toss mold in there. Let's just toss mold in for fun because you yeah, know absolutely they absolutely. fire up the same pathways, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, typically when a child presents, um, you know, we're always looking at milestones and trying to determine, you know, through history, is this something organic that's just sort of starting to emerge as they're growing, especially if they're hitting puberty, you know, have, and, and you kind of really have to trace it back to say, have you noticed these soft signs? If you really look back, hindsight's twenty twenty, you know, because again, we're not dealing with an adult who had symptoms, we're dealing with a kid who's still developing. So you kind of have to keep that in mind. Um, But what I find is that typically these children have absolutely no neurological history whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, almost like flipping a switch, you end up with kids who are highly anxious or develop severe OCD patterns. Um, And it can be something that isn't quite impacting their daily life yet from, you know, eh, they're a little germaphobic to washing their hands 15 times a day to having to, you know, tap the threshold before they can walk through it kind of things that can be quite impeding, you know, impeding their abilities to just live life. Um, Severe outbursts, um, major uh, concentration issues, um, even, um, you know, some pretty significant depression can be involved with it. um, And overall personality changes. Um, A lot of the... um, you know, initial symptoms that I'll notice is that a parent will say, well, I really started noticing that they weren't sleeping well. They were waking up with kind of like a night terror as if they were, uh, you know, a toddler again. Um, And then it progressed to they just couldn't focus in school and they would just have outbursts. But we just thought it was related to, to, you know, their ability that maybe something was hard, you know, difficult for them to comprehend or a difficult subject in school and they just couldn't grasp it. Um, and then, you know, you start digging more and more and you say, well, you know, there, there's some pretty significant, um, neurological changes. So in addition to things like the headache and fatigue, which could be a thousand things, I mean, really, um, and, you know, um, you know, the general pain, um, and muscle twitch that, that you can sometimes see, which again, could be many, many things. It's all that inflammatory component. So where you see children are different from adults is a blood brain barrier. It isn't quite healed, you know, sealed as tightly as, as, as it is in adults. Um, so children are, um, and meaning in, in my, uh, my description of children are, you know, zero to 22, essentially, 
um, is that uh, kids are quicker to um, develop more of an autoantibody response um, if the cards line up right. You know, underlying genetic SNPs, other environmental exposures, yada, yada, uh, health of the gut, all those things add in. Um, but th that blood brain barrier is more vulnerable. So then you get that inflammatory response. Those, you know, autoantibodies cross over and you get inflammation. Um, you know, there are a couple of colleagues who, um, uh, who actually focus their efforts on this. Um, you know, Dr. Fallon is big into the whole neurological component and looking at Lyme, neuro-Lyme. Um, there were some uh, studies, and I'll have to find them, um, where they were performing spec scans on these kids and seeing that sort of cortical, subcortical areas of the brain were lighting up. They were inflamed. So, uh, you know, the problem with the, the neurological component is that um, which we refer to as more of like an autoimmune encephalopathy kind of comes and goes versus like, you know, an acute meningitis, I'm in the hospital on IV antibiotic kind of thing, but it comes and goes like with your daughter, the headaches sometimes with the, you know, the, the moods, you know, changes and the concentration issues and the sleep issues, and it kind of comes and goes. Um, and it's very difficult um, to, uh, you know, unless you're in kind of this, area of practice, I think it's difficult for providers, you know, especially if they're taking their kids to urgent care to really connect the dots and say, oh, well, maybe they're just making this up, you know, or maybe they're just looking for attention or maybe it's just a viral thing. It'll pass. That's what I hear often. And these are well-intentioned providers. They just, you know, I, I just don't think that they know. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, so let's, that's, yeah, let's, so let's pause there. Cause you hit on maybe the most important issue that we're struggling with right now. So when I got started doing this podcast, whatever it was, five and a half years ago, the main issue was just awareness in general, right? And now the awareness is out there. It's not, you know, Lyme disease is this, you know, exotic thing that just is in the Hudson Valley. It's really, you know, people have the sense that it's all over the place. And for the most part, I hear story after story of diagnoses happening, I like to say, over the backyard fence. So mm -hmm. somebody will mention in passing, we just had a young man on here who, who wrote a book, and his diagnosis uh, started from he was getting some scan for something, and the nurse said offhandedly, or the person, mm -hmm. the tech transporting him said, oh, that sounds like Lyme disease. And that was it, right? Mm -hmm. And so he that started oh, yeah. his journey into looking into it, and sure enough, you know, a couple of years later after that, or six months or whatever it was. So how do how do we get physicians aware of this? Because you have one message coming down from on top here. I gotta go in this the screen here. One right. message coming from the right. <laughs> and then we've got reality underneath, right? And, right. and again, physicians are maxed out. They're not trying to do a bad job. They're trying to filter in good information, from bad information. And just, mm -hmm. I mean, just what's happened with COVID now, now everybody no. is at home broadcasting something on Zoom, right? Right, the, right. The amount, the amount of information is just is literally overwhelming. And some of these people are credentialed too. It's not, you know, like I'm just a guy with a, you know, who sticks needles in people and has been talking to people with Lyme disease. But there's some... You know, fairly well-credentialed people out there creating content. So who, who do you listen to? How do you get that information out? Yeah. I, I, you know, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I mean, 
I, I think that it, you know, I, I find today that, um, you know, medicine is so incredibly siloed um, and that there are governing bodies per specialty and they're just not talking. Um, and because they're not talking, they're not connecting those symptoms. Um, you know, I think that it really has to come from the top. Um, you know, we have those two big organizations, um, on both sides of the fence <laughs> with, with Lyme and until they can come to some sort of, uh, you know, a collaborative agreement. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, so let's kidnap them, take them to a cabin somewhere in the Adirondacks, lock them inside right. It's kind of like how they choose a pope, right? And just right. keep them in there, and then when the, yeah. the white yeah. smoke comes out, we'll we'll all be good. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> oh, good it's group. a tough one. It's a tough it one. Is. Well, I know yeah. Horowitz has this dream, and and he's been working on starting a curriculum uh, mm -hmm. in, in a medical school. And I thought that was ambitious and wonderful. I haven't heard any update recently, uh, but that's you know something like that. You know, right. it's, it's a start, but that's still, right. you know, even if he does that, there's still, you're not, you're not the expert, right? You're not the Dr. Right. Fauci of the Lyme disease world. Right. And it, that unfortunately, or fortunately, depending mm -hmm. on where you sit, that carries a ton of weight. Actually, my daughter, who was on the screen earlier, she's doing a nutrition course out of Cornell. And, mm -hmm. and so one of the things they teach, and this actually drives me nuts because I'm, you know, I'm I'm out on the fringe, but they teach them that one of the things you have to look at it, looking at research is is the is the author and the institution is coming out of credible, right? So that's one and of the things. I, so so who, who defines, determines who determines right. credible? You know, I right. read all kinds of funny story. You know, I was just reading a paper on peroxynitrite. I struggled all weekend reading this chemical, right? It's the, anyway brutal, and it, it was out of a, a small. Uh, university in Paraguay. And it's mm -hmm. this wonderful summation of all the recent research up to like three years ago. And it was a great introduction to me. Now, I'm not going to throw that away because, you know, everything's documented. You know, I checked out a right. bunch of the studies that they had too. It's not like they were making stuff up, but mm -hmm. they're not, you know, that's not somebody, somebody's going to turn to, oh yeah, let's go check out and see what the University of Paraguay is doing, you know, on the right. peroxynitrate research. It's like, no, we're going to move that aside and I'm going to listen to anyway. I'm just, I'm right. on a soapbox. Get me off my soapbox. Stop oh, it. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> <sighs> Good grief. All right. So. I agree, though. Yeah. It's, it's. Yeah. I mean, that's what science is about. Not about who's, who's got the fanciest cap and gown, but, you know, or the best bumper stickers, like who's, who produces the results. And that's, and the history, I'm back on my soapbox. I can't help it. The history <laughs> over and over and over again points to the people on the fringe making the breakthroughs. I mean, go back to tuberculosis, hand washing, for goodness sake. All the experts say, oh, what are you doing washing your hands? You're an idiot, right? The mm -hmm. guy the guy ends up, Semmelweis ends up in a, an insane asylum, right? Mm -hmm. He lost his life. He lost his mind. He lost his fortune because he wanted people to wash their hands. And now that's all we hear 24 hours a day is wash your hands, wash your hands. But at the experts told him he was nuts. And that's not that long ago. Yeah. That's not like yeah. that's 500 years ago. That's only like what? 150, 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I always live by the, the, you know, the, the saying that, uh, you know, people will always reject the unfamiliar. 
Um, and, you know, and, and eventually it will eventually evolve. Hopefully I have to be optimistic and, and assume that there, there has to be, you know, a breaking point where we surmount this, this great deal of data to the point that, that it's, you know, undeniable, but you know, that's my again, positive spin, hopefully. Yes. So yeah. that brings up another very interesting question. I'll try to ask it and, and be quiet is, so how do you, cause I know down there, you guys are doing all kinds of very, very interesting interventions and treatments. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. do you decide whether to bring something in? Because there's not what you're doing. There's not a whole lot. There's maybe some clinical validation here, but. Right. Like, well, it's, you know, the first question is that we always ask is, you know, will is, is, you know, will this do harm? If we give, if we try this, are we really going to create more harm than good with those patients? Um, and we do our due diligence and, and look at clinical studies and look at the science behind it. Um, and, and I'm very slow to bring on um, some of the um, treatments that we do with the children until we've kind of used it on the adults first. <laughs> so, so I look at my colleague, Dr. Mock, and I'm like, you go ahead. <laughs> See how that works. Let me know out. how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, but, but then there are things that are still uh, questioned, but there's a ton of data. So things like ozone. Um, you know, that's something I use quite uh, frequently with a lot of my kids. Um, and uh, there's a great deal of data. And uh, but but then, you know, you're always evaluating risks and benefits of everything you do. So, uh, you know, it's some things you just kind of have to you have to go for it in, in a, a smart way and. Um, try to determine all the potential risks and benefits and side effects and have that, um, you know, open discussion with your your patients, you know, full transparency. Um, and um, many of them are willing to go and, and give it a try and some are not. And we don't push the the issue any further. Um, but it's, it is, it's, you know, it's tricky sometimes kind of being on the fringe of you, as you've said, because we're kind of pioneering a lot of of these treatments and. Um, and, and they're not necessarily foreign. Um, it's just they haven't been used in this way for this type of, uh, you know, a disease process or an illness process per se. So can you can you help me with ozone treatment? Because I, I get stuck and I had this explained to me recently and my brain could hold the information for about 30 seconds and then mm -hmm. it snapped back to its original. So ozone is a very, very reactive chemical right? It reacts with everything. How come it doesn't do more damage in a human being? Well, in a human being, it's very different. So it isn't ozone as in, oh, the ozone layer, there's a big hole, yada, yada. So in the body, it's it's almost more like, um, uh, you know, a modulator. So it is really functioning more on NAD and NADH in the body. Okay. So yes, it's O3. Yes, it's a reactive series. Yes, it can technically cause inflammation, but it can also calm it down. Um, so it's there to balance, which is fascinating. Um, you know, and I, you know, I've 
certified in it. I've gone to all of the classes and, and I've had it explained and I'll say, yes, I understand it, but I still always question, how the heck does it do it? <laughs> but really it, it's, it's working on NAD and NADH in the body. And that makes sense to me. Well, if it's imbalanced, it's going to help to kind of potentiate what it needs to calm down yeah. the other. Uh, yeah. So and so any particular, so everybody forgive us for a second, but I have to get a little bit geeky here. Any particular part is it part of the creation pathway of it or just the balance between NAD, NADPH, and all the, the four little variations it, of that? It seems to be, my understanding, is is part of the balance of okay. it. Um, yeah, primarily. Um, my understanding, too, is that um, it can also sort of ignite that process as well. So people do have a slight inflammatory response initially as we're revving revving up that treatment. Yep. Um, but, um, you know, it um, primarily is there to kind of temper some of those, those responses as well. Okay. So let's open this up to our, the people of, who are watching us. And okay. there are some questions already and let me just sort through them here okay. and see okay. what we find. And we'll just go a few more minutes here. Sure. Do, 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 do. So actually, a lot of these are kind of comments about some of the big picture stuff that we talked about. But okay. oh, let's start here. Julie talks about Bartnell being confused with autism. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, there are uh, some very controversial studies bubbling and brewing that are linking kids who t who have been diagnosed with autism as actually having underlying infections, Bartonella and other co-infections. Um, and I could totally agree with that, um, you know, from what I've seen clinically as well. Um, some of those um, similar symptoms that we see with Bartonella from the kind of um, the OCD, the um, the mood component, the dysregulation, um, very similar to a child who, who has been diagnosed with autism. So good connection there with that. And then also comes to mind, of course, just kind of the ramp, especially with the, the high achieving crowd and the college uh -huh. crowd is just uh -huh. the, the anxiety and the level of any depressant and any anxiety drugs that are prescribed. I mean, right. we're, we're up here near a college and the numbers are astonishing about the percentage mm -hmm. of those young people who, who are on meds, who are on psych meds. Yeah. The, um, there was a, a study by um, Dr. Greenberg. Um, she's an adolescent psychiatrist. Um, and she did a, it was a small study. It was about 14 or 15 kids. And essentially, uh, they were all diagnosed with forms of uh, with bipolar or other um, kind of, uh, you know, mood or psychiatric um, disorders and were not as responsive to medications. Um, and out of the 14, um, all of them had some sort of a co-infection <laughs> underlying <laughs> and only one of them actually had like physical symptoms of like a joint pain and fatigue, but it was all neurological. It was all behavioral. So, uh, you know, I, I really feel that 
Um, and then Bransfield was the one who was looking into sort of the studies with the autism and link with Lyme co-infection. Um, and, um, but, you know, I, I, I find that many, many children, or I feel that many children are misdiagnosed with mental health issues. And, and clearly it's some sort of an underlying infection of sorts, whether it be tick or, or, or tick-borne um, co-infections. And then, um, you know, the, the side effects, neurological side effects of those versus it being a true, you know, um, neurotransmitter issue. It's typically an inflammatory issue related right. to the bugs. So. Underlying it all, right? Right. So this is interesting because this actually popped in my mind too. So many adults, right? Many patients needs to start off with tiny, tiny doses and yes. children are even smaller and they're not just little adults, they're children. They're like you mentioned with the blood brain barrier, they're their chemistry, their biology is different. Right. So how how small do you start with children on dosage? Well, dosage is based on milligram per kilogram. Okay. Um, so it's it's always been. Um, so we never, it's never one size fits all. Um, and you know, based upon the history um that I get from the the parents, sort of like, well, how does your kid react to, you know, if you give them Motrin or Tylenol, do they get super sleepy with it? You know, so I ask about certain things with dietary and medications and supplements that they've given their children in the past, just to get a good sense of um, you know, uh, you know, their level of sensitivity. So there's the standard milligram per kilogram dose. And if their child seems super sensitive to certain things or has a ton of allergies and seems like they have, you know, inflammatory process like a mast cell or something else going on, we'll start, you know, a quarter of that dose. And then I'll work my way up. So it can take weeks, sometimes even months to get them up to a full dose where, you know, therapeutic. Um, and then there are sometimes even where I have to forego treatment altogether and just calm down the inflammation just enough to keep them from reacting so severely that they don't tolerate the regimen. Um, and that's typically with, you know, medications um, where I will definitely switch gears to herbal. I can control a drop at a time and, and not worry so much about, uh, you know, uh, worrying about reaching that level uh, of the medication where it's therapeutic, where herbals are a little, a little more forgiving. Yes. So, and you can put a drop in a glass of water and even put it out more, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. This is technical question. I have no idea what okay. it means, but okay. when it comes to ozone therapy, does it have to be 10 pass or what is the most effective method? It doesn't have to be 10 pass. Um, it, I find the most effective is MAH therapy, which is major autohemotherapy. It's the safest. Um, so 10 passages, running it back and forth multiple times. So in theory, you're kind of getting a higher dose okay. um, where MAH is using a slightly, is using a larger volume. So it kind of, you know, works out to be the same, I find clinically. Um, but I do find that it needs to be, um, you know, that direct blood exchange to really, you know, um, get the effect that you're looking for. Um, there's other, there are other forms of, of um, ozone and it's either ozonating water and drinking water. Some people will do, um, it's kind of smells like swamp water. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's delightful. Um, and, uh, or, uh, you know, minor um, you know, injections. You're taking sort of like uh, a five cc syringe and injecting after you've mixed 
the ozone with your blood and you're almost like you're auto vaccinating. Um, and then there are rectal um, ozones uh, that you can do, which can actually cause a lot of inflammation with some people if you're not careful. Um, so I, I do find that either tin pass or MAH therapy, depending upon what you tolerate, um, seems to be the most effective. Okay. And do you think that Lyme and co-infections will ever be given enough credibility that it becomes a checkbox on the diagnostic sheet so its insurance will cover more reliable tests? Oh, I hope so. I can only hope. <laughs> and I think that, you know, as long as there are, uh, you know, the squeaky wheel, so to speak, like us out there, um, and, you know, the more and more we recruit other people to advocate and the more uh, data we put out there, and- you know. Yeah, and and we just need a better test. Like, we do need a better you, you know, test. We, I we had do. I had a patient a while back. He was a very well respected uh, pediatric uh, surgeon, uh, orthopedic mm-hmm. surgeon, and he took on the toughest cases in the country, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and he had Lyme disease, right? So he mm-hmm. set up a meeting with me and this other uh, head of an orthopedic, and basically his message was: Look, some of these, you know, kind of non-specific orthopedic problems you see coming in could be Lyme disease. You know, are you willing, you know, what can we do about this? So we have this long conversation in a restaurant and basically at the end of it, the the head of the orthopedic clinic said, okay, so we don't have a good test for this and we don't have a good treatment for this. And you want me to do what again? (laughs) And this was somebody who was open-minded, right? Right. You know, it's just like, we just need a little bit, you know, even though the hygienics is a great test, but it's, it's still not foolproof. It's yeah. not foolproof. And it takes yeah. a while and it costs a bit of money right now. Right. You know, right. there's, there's, there's that issue with it, even though it's some of it's, you know, starting to be covered a little bit more regularly, but to do a whole tick-borne panel at this point. Oh, oh it's, it's expensive. Know, and, right, and, to, and to justify that. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's different working in a, in a, in a clinic like you do where the conversations with the patient is, you know, can you afford this, but trying to uh, right. justify that to an insurance company is a whole nother ball of wax. Cause again, we're talking about the top down experts saying, what are you doing that for? Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. I always joke and say um, sort of tongue in cheek that it's going to take, um, you know, one of, you know, either a really, really important person to contract the disease sort of to, and, and God forbid anyone has, you know, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but it's going to take something like that, that big. Um, and, or, you know, some of those, um, those, uh, you know, heads of some of those big organizations, you know, to, to retire. Uh, yeah. Let's just say <laughs> to retire. So whatever happens first. <laughs> So I'm not advocating that anyone give, you know, give some hey, direct action. No, we're not. No. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, it, it's got to be something, you know, that uh, that big, you know, for that to happen. But, yeah. you know, we'll just keep plugging along and, and keep pushing. That's what we do. So. Yes. And, and again, how, how long have you been with Dr. Bach again? Uh, about four years. For about four years. So you really, you kind of came on as things were, you're one of the people who shifted this. You you were on that wave where things really went from way out in the wilderness to now we're just kind of like an outpost town or something. Right. There's a, it's not, you, you still have to look 
for diagnosis. You still have to look for an LLMD, but it's not like you have to go looking under rocks. I mean, you guys were hiding before you had to hide before, and it's not that bad anymore. It's not right. good by any stretch of the imagination, no. but, but no. it's not terrible. And it's still, there's a lot of work to done. That's not what I'm saying, but it, it mm -hmm. could be a lot worse. All right. Uh, thank you so much. I'll let you get back to Noah, right? <laughs> Yes, one of them. <laughs> and, and the rest of your family, thank you for giving up part of your evening. It, it's course. so important. And I want to leave you with the last word. Tell people how they can get in touch with you and Dr. Bach's clinic, your clinic, I should say, is part of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, well, there uh, you can follow us on certainly at Facebook at uh, Ken Bach. Um, I also have a blog at summerdelsenor.com. And then we have... Um, an Instagram uh, account um, that is NY um, limes and, and, and pans. So I'll have to send that to you. So, um, so we're, we're online. Uh, it's exhausting, but we try to keep up with it. <laughs> and uh, certainly we're in Red Hook, Red Hook, New York. So small, small area is very difficult to, uh, to get lost there. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Thank yeah. you so much. It's been Thank a pleasure. And I have to come back and visit you, come down and visit you guys. Now that I know you, it's a definite excuse to do it. Once this whole thing is blown over and we're allowed yes. to travel again. So you got it. All, All right. right. Thank you so much for having me. Great Take to care. talk to you. Yes. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. All right. That was, she is a wealth of information. That was absolutely incredible. So much has changed. You remember some of our conversations? Remember talking with Dr. Horowitz way, way back then? Remember yeah. that interview? And some mm -hmm. things have changed so much in the past couple of years. So yeah. I know it doesn't make any Lyme any easier to treat, but just the volume of information, the number of patients under treatment, uh, with credible people and people who understand, you know, understand the disease, understand physiology, who don't just have like one picture and are beginning to synthesize it. You know, she talked about the yeah. silos to kind of break apart those silos. Yeah. Is and, so, and they're willing to consider it even in the, like even long-term treatments. It's yes. really important. All right. Thank you all for uh, joining us. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. And as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas can make a stop sign say go? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.